Luke chapter 4 and verse 14 here is where we'll be beginning. And as we noted last week there, it, it's, it was, it's been said as the Son of Man, Jesus was able not to sin. And as the Son of God, He was not able to sin. That this is true. We say, how, how could Jesus' temptation really be a temptation if He is the God-man, Christ Jesus, who cannot sin? But He was the man. He was a man. The Son of Man. But as a son of man, he was not able, he was able not to sin. And that's true. But this is not really the main point of the temptation. The main point of the temptation is that the son of man, Jesus, confronted the God of this world about the kingdom. Satan sought to entice him in three areas. One, to act on his own to meet a genuine need but to do so just for himself. Second, Satan tempted him to bypass the will of God in his first coming, which involved his rejection, his suffering, and his substitutionary death to redeem a people for God. Satan offered to give him the kingdoms of the world in exchange for just oh, bowing the knee and worshiping there at that moment. And he said no. The third was to use a spectacular scheme to gain acceptance with the people as Israel's Messiah. They expected their Messiah to come out, come out of nowhere. And, how, and what a glorious demonstration that would be if all of a sudden, oh, look up there! And so I see Jesus floating down and coming down into the temple courtyard area unharmed and announcing that I am your Messiah. But Jesus uh, said no to that as well. And because of this, he becomes the second Adam who finally and fully overcame the serpent both on the cross and therefore able to crush his head as was promised in Genesis 3.15. Now let's get into the text itself. So in verse 14, Jesus returned, that is, from the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days, as we just reviewed here. This was in Judea. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Wow, that's encouraging. That's, this is verses 14 and 15. Very encouraging. So now Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This return to Galilee with its accompanying ministry was widely reported. The uh, word there that's... Uh, and it made Jesus famous. And the word here that's translated, reported, is the Greek word phema, from which we get our English word fame. 
Luke does not give us any details, but only that the information of his powerful and effective ministry had spread as he taught in the synagogues, performed supernatural acts, the miracles of healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, and expelling demons from those who were possessed, which again shows his power over Satan. These were all signs that the kingdom had come because Satan's authority was now being overruled. The response was that Jesus was being glorified by all. But that's about to change. When he comes here to his own region where he grew up, and uh, this is what Luke records here, his, the, the beginning of his growing rejection, beginning here in his hometown of Nazareth. Now, I want to emphasize popular, a lot of popular evangelical preaching has Jesus Christ coming to the nation of Israel to offer to them the kingdom of God, if they will accept it. They, these teach that uh, he sought to convince his hearers that they needed to receive him as their messianic king so that he could bring them back to God, that is the nation of Israel, to bring the nation of Israel back to God and to restore the nation as promised by the prophets. Sadly, Jesus failed, according to them. And God used it then for his own purpose, for good anyway. Introducing the gospel of salvation to be preached in the interim until Jesus would return and establish his millennial kingdom then on earth. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel showed that Jesus, as planned, had to be rejected. And this rejection was to provide for two things. Number one, God could now judge the nation for good regarding its long history of covenant unfaithfulness. And this was foretold in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 15. I'm not going to read that. The de then secondly, the death of Christ and the judgment of God on Israel would thus, uh, for this offense, would thus end the old covenant era and establish the new covenant to bring in the kingdom of God through the church. The full restoration of all things would happen in the new earth when Jesus comes again. That brings us to verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he was brought up. And as, his cus as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now I want to briefly here go through the four Gospels and show you how they all uh, introduce the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel introduced Jesus' ministry following his temptation in the wilderness 
in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where we read, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew, that is from the region of Judea, into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, his hometown, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. What Matthew doesn't say was his rejection at Nazareth, which then prompted him to move his entire family to uh, Capernaum, which we, which we will note. But uh, Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what Isaiah said in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Note that. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who dwelling in the region... And the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. Mark's gospel introduced Jesus' ministry affirming that Jesus returned to Galilee following his temptation. But Mark announces that when, uh, uh, excuse me, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent of violating God's covenant law and through their unfaithfulness and believe, that is, believe the gospel, uh, and which was God's means then for the people to experience the new covenant that would result in the restoration of all things. Repent and believe. Mark does not mention Christ's visit to the synagogue in Nazareth, but following, but began by focusing on his calling of his disciples, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, to leave their nets and to follow him, which happened near Capernaum. And then, according to Mark, they immediately uh, if you read Mark's gospel, he uses this term immediately 36 times. His is a gospel of action. Immediately. Uh, they went to Capernaum, where he then entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and exercised a, an unclean spirit from a man that was there. That is, this demon showing again his power over Satan. John's gospel has an extended discussion of Jesus' earth early ministry, switching back and forth between Judea and Galilee. For example, here, in the calling of his disciples, Andrew, who then sought out Peter and Philip and Nathaniel in that which happened in Judea. And then his first miracle of turning the water into wine was at the wedding of Cana, which was in Galilee. Then his first cleansing of the temple and his confrontation with Nicodemus, which occurred in Jerusalem of Judea. So then in chapter 4, John then has Jesus returning to Galilee after learning that the Pharisees were making an issue over his popularity. 
in hopes then of upsetting the disciples of John and causing division between them. Jesus just left. And then John goes on to record how that he got sidetracked there for two days in Samaria, ministering to all who had believed on him due to the testimony of the woman at the well. In John 4.44, we have a parenthesis explaining, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This is a clear reference to Jesus' appearance in the synagogue in Nazareth that resulted in his rejection, which is recorded in our text. Obviously, both Nazareth and Capernaum were cities in Galilee. But here's the point that's not clearly taught in the Scripture, but yet you can figure this out. What one needs to understand here is that Nazareth was primarily a Jewish community, whereas Capernaum was primarily Gentile. As Isaiah described it, Galilee of the Gentiles. In Capernaum, he was welcomed. Let's so let's then consider Nazareth. Where was Nazareth located? There's a land mass there between the Jordan River and the, and the sea. Nazareth is right about in the middle there. On the western side of the mountains that, that uh, occupied the west side of the Jordan River. So right kind of uh, 20 miles, actually 20 miles from the Sea of Galilee and 20 miles from the city of Capernaum, which was located on the northwest tip of the Sea of Galilee. Cana, which is referenced there where Jesus performed his first miracle, was located 10 miles just due north of Nazareth. And uh, this John reference is in his text there, and at Capernaum there was an official who was ill in verse 40, 46 there of, of, four, of chapter 4. But I want to call your attention here to John 2.2, 2, which informs us that after this, and it's the wedding at Cana of Galilee, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And the idea here is that here is where he moved after his rejection from Nazareth. And then it says they, I believe Jesus and his disciples, stayed there for a few days and then went on their way to minister. Lastly here, with respect to this, note that Luke gives the details of Jesus' encounter at the synagogue in Nazareth and of the people's rejection of him. And this is referenced there by this one statement in John, a prophet is has no honor in his own hometown. 444. So Luke here also abandons the chronological order of events in Jesus' ministry so that he could focus on the kingdom of God that would be established through him, through Jesus and his church, and not 
the nation of Israel. Thus, he begins by showing Jesus' rejection in his own hometown. Why did the people become so angry that they tried to throw him off a cliff? So let's examine that. As his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. According to Luke chapter 4.16, his custom was attending the synagogue. I'm going to talk about the synagogue here in a minute, but he went into the synagogue during the time, their time of service. The synagogues had no official reader of Scripture, yet they encouraged the reading of Scripture every time on the Sabbath. So any competent male who could read could volunteer to read the Scriptures at, any appoint, at the appointed time. Rabbis, however, were then accorded even an, a, a greater opportunity to comment on the reading. So Jesus took a seat, the seat required there, the chair that was provided for those who would read. And the scroll keeper handed him the, the, the book of Isaiah, probably at Jesus' request. He asked for it. And then taking the scroll... He located, and remember, there are no chapter divisions in the original text. So he had to, he had to find in the scroll of Isaiah uh, what, what is now in our Bibles, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he read from there, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Let me just pause here and talk about the synagogue for just a second. The synagogue was established as the place of worship for the Jews during the Babylonian exile. The temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They could not fulfill the law because the temple was gone. There could be no sacrifices. The priests couldn't function. So what did the people do? They formed local assemblies or congregations of worship. And even uh, after the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel because of the dispersion of the Jews, it became physically impossible for them to go to the temple. So they, the Jews regularly attended worship in the synagogues. And I, I would encourage you or to note here that Jesus used the synagogue, which, and by the way, the word synagogue means congregation. He used it as a model for the church. And so he, he said, I will build my church. There, the Greek word is ekklesia, which means assembly. I will build my ecclesia, my assembly, my assembly, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Now, before considering the implications of his reading of this prophecy, I think we need to look at for, for a second at the background of the, of the prophecy itself. 
the last chapters of Isaiah, chapters 58 through 66, deal with Israel's sinful conduct in contrast to God's gracious promises for the obedient remnant. The promises of God in these chapters were not made for the nation as a whole, but for the obedient remnant within the nation. The whole section is God's plea to the nation to amend her ways, warning her that if Israel did not repent, he would exile them to Babylon for 70 years. Recounting the history of the nation and her propensity to sin and the rebellion uh, as contrasted with God's covenant love and faithfulness, the prophet lays out Israel's future. The obstinance on the part of the descendants of Abraham provoked the Lord to deal with the nation in his wrath. Isn't it interesting? Jesus was suggesting the wrath of God to the people at Nazareth and their response was wrath against Jesus. I trampled, God says here in chapter 63, verse 6, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now interspersed with Yahweh's pleas and threats in recognition of the remnant of the faithful righteous, he said in chapter 58, verses 8 and 9, for he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. And in all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. That's the faithful remnant. Yahweh took it upon himself to save these people. So we read there in 59 verse 20, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own right arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. How would Yahweh accomplish this? We read here, a Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression. Yes, Jesus was that Redeemer. And he came to save the righteous remnant. But he also came to bring the rebellious nation into judgment on the day of the Lord's vengeance. However, to get to that purpose, Jesus needed to call out the remnant. Walking in the hope of salvation and then doing so reveal the innate hatred of the rest of the people. And this is what Luke records in the text before us. And I would encourage you to take time and read these chapters from 58 through 66 in Isaiah and meditate on them. Because these are tremendous, tremendous passages. So then, 
Jesus ended his reading of the passage from Isaiah at midpoint in verse 2. If you'll notice that, there's two things, two days are mentioned, or two things or time periods that are mentioned here. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus because God anointed him to accomplish these tasks. Number one, to bring the gospel, that is the good news to the poor. Who's the poor? That is the spiritually poor, the meek who will inherit the earth. Second, to, to bind up the brokenhearted. Again, it's a spiritual reference to those who see and acknowledge their sin. Thirdly, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to those captured in sin and captain, captured by their own sinful lusts. Opening the prison doors for those that are bound. Now, it's interesting here, and I, and I can't say I fully understand it myself, but the Septuagint reads differently. The Septuagint, and, and Jesus read from the Septuagint, to, well, Mark has the Septuagint reading. Jesus probably read from the Hebrew but, uh, or, or the Aramaic, but the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament, has opening the eyes of those who are blind and recovering of sight to the blind rather than uh, opening the prison bars to those that are bound. And uh, like I said, I, I, I don't say I can fully explain that, but number four, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that is the new era that Messiah would usher in the gospel age of grace. We're living in that gospel age of grace right now, from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. So after reading this, he returned the scroll to the keeper and sat down. And, it's, and we read here, the eyes of all the who were attending were fixed on him. Fixed. The English word there translated fixed is actually the Greek word that from which we get our English word attention. Their attention was fully fixed on Jesus Christ. So then he said, today this scripture, notice today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Ah, would Nazareth recognize the glorious truth they were just told? Would they understand the things that belong to their peace? Ah, but sadly, no. Like Jerusalem, these things were hidden from her eyes. So then Luke comments, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is, a, this, I believe Luke interjects here and the idea here is, is to connect what they had just heard with what they were hearing about Jesus from the reports of his words and works in, done in other places. Which provoked Jesus to remark 
what we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. That's 23, verse 23. There were a number of implications, unspoken but clearly evident. They were trying to put everything together in their own minds. They just heard these words. They just heard Jesus say, This day, today, is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. And they say, Boy, we've heard a lot about what he did up in Capernaum. How he healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out devils. But he's not doing it here. What's going on? So the people said, uh, Is not this the son of Joseph? See, here's the problem. People passed judgment on Jesus by what they thought they understood. We know him. We watched him grow up in our community. We know who his parents are and who his siblings are. How can he claim that what Isaiah prophesied concerning Messiah really applies to him? So Jesus took it further. <laughs> he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What did he mean by that? Well, his next statement explains it. It's their thinking. If Jesus would just perform the miracles that we heard that he did in Capernaum here, we might believe him. To which he then responded, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He said, you're never going to believe me. You're never going to believe me. Then he dropped the bombshell. And again, the information is implied. The miracles at, in Cana were done in a primarily Gentile community. Biblical history also shows that God has consistently showed great mercy to Gentiles. The people of Israel had gotten this idea that they were the exclusive people of God. That Gentiles were dogs. And I think they probably got it there from Deuteronomy 32 where God turned the nations over to the sons of God but the one nation he chose for himself, the sons of Jacob. So, uh, they said, God's not interested in saving Gentiles. Even though Gentiles came to seek God in Jerusalem. Which is an interesting thing. And the prophets here because he read from Isaiah and Isaiah 9 verse chapter 9, uh, 9 verses 1 to 6 particularly here 
show again Zebulun and Naphtali, the Galilee of the Gentiles, were those who walk in darkness but have seen a great light. And in that passage we read, unto them a child is born, unto them a son is given. The people who walked in darkness and saw the great light. Unto them a child is born, unto them a son is given. So then Jesus turned and illustrated this by noting there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but God sent, uh, excuse me, Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a Gentile woman who was a widow. That's verses 25 and 26. Then he goes on. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, who was a Gentile. Verse 27. And what was the reaction? <laughs> Explosive anger, wrath from all who were in the synagogue. And that caused them to quit the, their service immediately drive Jesus out of the city and to a, the precipice of a cliff where they intended to throw him to his death. However, his time to die had not yet come and he miraculously walked away unharmed. That must have been interesting to see. They looked around and said, where is he? <laughs> he was gone. He was gone. That brings me to the last point here, and I want to deal here with the two times that Jesus, uh, actually he only cited one of them. The second one is also in that, in that verse. It's one is the year of the Lord's favor, which he quoted, and the one that he didn't cite is the day of the vengeance of our God. This is Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 2. Jesus, reading from the passage, ended then with the year of the Lord's favor. We ask why. Jesus said, today, this scripture it has been fulfilled in your hearing. The second one, the day of the vengeance of the Lord of the vengeance, couldn't be said to have been fulfilled today. You see what I'm saying? So he didn't use that one. The year of the Lord's favor, notice there's the two things. There's a year and a day. A year indicates a, va a vast period of time, a lengthy period of time compared to, the day, to a day. But Jesus here is speaking of that period from his first coming to his second coming. The year of the Lord's favor. Paul talked about that in Corinthians when he says, Behold, today is the accepted day. Now is the time. We live in the, in the year of the Lord's favor, in this period when God's grace is calling out a people for His name, out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and people. But this year is going to end when... We don't know. 
But it will end. And when it ends, it's going to end in the day of the Lord's vengeance. That final day. Jesus announced what Isaiah prophesied as fulfilled that day. The Redeemer had come to Zion. Would they repent and believe on Him? Their eternal souls hung in the balance. Their response then would provoke would also provoke them on them the judgment promised on them for their rejection of Christ. So we read there in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 4, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies while, they, while you look on. And I will... Give all Judea into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away captive to Babylon and strike them down with the sword. The Babylonian captivity was just a precursor of the day of vengeance, which was the Romans, excuse me, the Roman siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. God warned them again and again that what he would do if they continued violating his covenant. And man, that, that, that was reading there out of Leviticus chapter 26, verse 32. God threatened them, I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. That is, their sacrifices. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste. That's Leviticus chapter 26 verse 32. And then we come up to Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9 verse 26. The people of the prince, that's the Romans, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's 70 A.D. The end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And then we read there in Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance. A year for recompense, a year for of recompense for the cause of Zion. It'll seem like a year when the judgment of God falls again at the end before Jesus comes. And so I close with this warning from John. For the Father, quoting Jesus here, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. Do you Have you heard His words? Have you believed on Him? You have eternal life. 
and because of that will not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Isn't that glorious? We've been born again. So then Jesus continued, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here. That is the age of grace. When the dead, spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The time is coming. Jesus said, right now I'm saving. And if you hear my voice and believe, you will be saved. Because the Father has given me life. As the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. But wait a minute. There's also coming a day when he has given him authority to judge. Now he's a savior. But the day is coming when he will be a judge. And by the way, all of us are going to stand before the judge of all the earth to give, it, to give account of the things done in the body, whether they're good or worthless. And there's going to be many Christians who are going to stand before the judge of all the earth and watch their life burned up. Yet they themselves will be saved, yet so is by fire. But then there will be many who have rejected Jesus who will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will suffer for eternity. Now, let me just close here with this. And Jesus, that's it. Jesus said, then do not marvel at this, that I have the power to make people live. And then he tells about the day. For an hour is coming. That's the day of the Lord's vengeance. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to, etern to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John chapter 5, verses 22 to 29. Let me ask you, where do you stand with Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that Luke gives us where he begins this work of bringing upon Israel the day of their vengeance. To open, Lord, the period of God's grace to the rest of the world. We're living in that day. And we've lived in it now for nearly 2,000 years. And Lord, we know that Jesus is going to come again and we've been warned in scriptures that in the last days there would be a falling away, a turning away, and we're seeing that very clearly these days. So we're wondering, Lord, is are you about to come back? And if so, Lord, 
prepare our hearts for it. Lord, give us an opportunity to live out these final days to your glory, to the rescue of those who need rescue. For we, we know from Scripture that the only thing really that keeps your coming keeps you from coming back even right now is the fact that there are still some who belong to you that have not yet received the gospel. So Lord, I pray, teach us to be faithful in this. And we look forward to that day. Lord, we don't want to be like those in Nazareth who reacted to your truth with wrath. Rather, Lord, we want to be those who trust you and glory in you. And we praise you in Jesus' name.